Um, well, welcome. Uh, it has been, uh, I feel like I've been all over the place as of late. I think I was telling somebody, I was like, I've missed probably like five out of the last seven Sundays here. It's not that I was sleeping in. It's not what I was doing. I've been just helping out at other churches. Last weekend, we had a conference. A whole bunch of us went to a conference on uh, missional living, and it was awesome. It was a great time to just be away and, um, you know, connect with what God is doing within our denomination in other areas. So very exciting stuff. I'm sure you'll hear all about it in the coming weeks and months. Um, Mike and Debbie Herbst, well, Debbie had the baby. Mike was there supporting her. Debbie had the baby. Emily's doing great. So I don't think they're here, but yay, Mike and Debbie. Did you guys clap for them last week? Okay. Old news. Fine. Well, you can pray for us. Uh, baby Nebla's number three is on the way on Thursday. FedEx. That's what we're telling our children. How does it happen? FedEx, all right? FedEx. <clears throat> so, well, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll jump in. So that means I won't be here on Sunday. So I'll admit, anyway. Um, Father, thank you. Thank you for this morning that you have given us. Thank you, Lord, just for this opportunity to gather. Um, Lord, this morning is really about you, God. This morning is, is really about worshiping you, centering our hearts and minds again on you, on the God of the universe, Lord, on the creator of all things. I pray that you would bless our morning today. I pray, Lord, that you would speak in a powerful way, that you would move in a powerful way, Lord. Praise things in your name. Amen. How many of you have ever seen the movie Gladiator? The Gladiator, Gladiator, right? One of top, top five movies of all time, yes? Uh, cinematography, obviously, is not all there. Like somebody was telling me about uh, Planet of the Apes this morning and just everything, the graphics and all this type of stuff. But it was a great movie when it came out. Now, if you know the story, Maximus is the central character of the movie. He is a general commander in the army of the Roman Empire. Now, at that time, the Caesar of the Roman Empire knew he was getting along in his days. He knew he was getting older. He knew it was time to name his successor which back in those times, it's only natural for you to name your, your, one of your children, firstborn son, whatever one, whichever one of them was your favorite. That's who, who you would name to be your successor and take over the empire and, and run it, do all that stuff. But Caesar didn't want to do that with his son, Commodus. So Maximus is the, is the main character. Commodus is the son of Caesar. He did not want to do that with him. See, what Caesar saw in Maximus was a good man. He saw a man who was faithful. He saw a man who had a tremendous amount of power, a tremendous amount of authority, a tremendous amount of influence over an extremely important part of the empire. But he did not wield this power for control. He did not use it to usurp anyone. He did not use it to manipulate and deceive. He used it for service. He served Caesar. He served Rome. He was a faithful man. On the other hand, you have Commodus, who was his son. 
his only son. Caesar's only son. And yet, in the movie, we find out that Commodus, he's not a moral man. That's what Caesar says of him. He is not a moral man. This man is not fit to lead this empire. When I see him, when I, when I see what Commodus portrays himself to be, I find someone who is truly faithless. Faithless. So Caesar tells Maximus of his plan. I'm going to make you the next Caesar because I know that you're going to re-empower the people, re-empower the Senate. You're going to you know, kind of take the empire away from this whole war and fighting and, and conquering and make it more civilized, more civilization. Maximus doesn't want to, but he eventually agrees. Then Caesar goes and tells his son his news, his idea. Commodus doesn't accept it. He hates the idea. It's his ambition to be Caesar. He wants to have the power. He wants to be the man. He wants to be in control. How could you possibly give the kingdom over to this guy who's a peasant? He's a farmer. How could you do that? In the midst of their conversation, Commodus basically loses it and he suffocates his father to death. It's just them, the two of them. So no one knows about this. Maximus is called in. It's found out that Caesar's passed away peacefully in his sleep, which is not the truth. And immediately Maximus realizes something is off, something is wrong. This is not right. And then the movie kind of takes off from there. Maximus was a faithful man. Faithful man. There was faithfulness in Maximus. But there was not any faithfulness in Commodus. We start off this morning, like we started off every Sunday uh, morning in the, over the past summer, in Galatians chapter 5. Going to have that flashed up there. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, it says this. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. This morning we're looking at faithfulness. Faith, faithfulness, faithlessness, faithful. These are probably some of the most uh, overused words, uh, especially in our Christian context. Um, And at the same time, some of the most vague words that we come across. Would you guys agree with that? I think you would. Very ambiguous, very overused. People use it all over the place, right? Faithful. It's It's interesting that there's no necessarily spiritual context for gladiator Yet that's the words that I've chosen to, to, to describe both of these two guys. One was faithful, one was faithless. When we use that term, even when we use that term, we use it to describe what? Whether someone was loyal or not, right? Oh, he or she is faithful. What does that mean? Well, he or she is loyal to me. It's not entirely what the word means. I'll get to that in a second. How do we interact with faith spiritually, right? We, act, we interact with faith as an empty cup of water. 
my life lacks faith, I talk to someone about it. Someone says, don't doubt, have faith. Oh, okay, I'll have faith. But do I need more faith? Yeah, you probably need more faith. Okay, I'll have more faith. Oh, something bad happened in my life. My faith is down. Oh, something good happened in my life. Faith's up. It's down. It's down. Oh, it's up. It's up. Great. Oh, it's back down. It's a good thing I had water up here because I am thirsty. That's how we interact with, with faith. It's up, it's down, it's a roller coaster ride of emotions depending on what's happening in my life. Faith's up, faith's down. Faith is stagnant. Faith has been flatlining for a really long time. Oh, now it's back up, now it's back down. What's wrong with this kind of faith is that it's based solely on results. It's based solely on things that we can see and interact with. Now, if you know anything about faith, faith is nonsensical. It's beyond what we can feel. It's beyond what we can see. It's beyond what we can touch. It's beyond what we can smell. Yet, it's just this intertwined sort of mess. Faithfulness that we're talking about this morning, faithfulness found in Galatians chapter 5, is dealing with God's believability. i say that again. The faithfulness that we're talking about this morning, the faithfulness that is being described here in Galatians chapter 5, deals with God's believability. And here's what you have to understand. Here's what we need to understand this morning. Here's the big concept. We will never believe in God. We will never believe in God until we allow ourselves to discover that God is is truly believable. I'll say that again. We will never believe God. We will never believe in God. We will never believe God unless we allow ourselves to discover that God is truly believable. The reason I used the illustration this morning that I did, the reason that I called Maximus a faith, a guy that's full of faith, a faith someone that has faithfulness in him is because Maximus was believable. Caesar saw all the things that I described to you about in him. That truly, here was a good man. But in his son, his son was not believable. Though his son portrayed a ton of stuff to him. Caesar, I will, you know, I'll worship you. I love you. You're the best. Let's sacrifice a thousand bulls in your honor. Caesar writes that all off because he knows that none of that is true. There's no substance to that. There's no depth to that. Commodus was not a moral man. Commodus was not someone to believe in. But Maximus was. Faith, faithfulness, deals with with God's believability. The question this morning is not whether God is faithful to us, and not whether God is loyal to us, but whether God can be trusted. Whether God is believable. Can I believe in God for who He is? 
for who he says that he is. That's what we're dealing with this morning. So we lack faith. I think we, all, we can all kind of come to grips with that. We've all been in moments in and out of our lives, perhaps this week, perhaps this morning, where faith is a roller coaster ride of emotions. Where does this lack of faith come from? And how do we begin to interact with it in a proper way? To answer this, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 3. It's on page 4 in the Blue Bible. I'll give you guys a little bit of a background on what's going on here. <clears throat> God has just created the world. Very simple, simply stated, but I'm sure um, no simple sort of task. I would imagine, complex, right? God has just finished creating the world. He's taken the empty, the voidless, um, the chaos, the darkness, and he's filled it with life. He's given this world rhythm and balance and purpose and movement. And then after all of this, God creates his greatest creation, man and woman. And he gives them identity. He calls them image bearers of God. They carry God's image within them. He gives them purpose. Go, multiply, subdue the earth, fill it. He gives them authority. You are to have dominion over the birds in the air and the creatures of the land and everything that's in the sea. You have dominion over it. But more importantly than any of this stuff, God has given himself to man and to woman. He's given himself. They are in relationship with God. They know God. They hear God's voice. They're present with God. He is present with them. He speaks to them. They walk together. As they learn to walk with God, they learn to walk with each other. Those same type of things, that same type of things that are being poured into their relationship with God, it's happening to one another. And it's awesome. So this is where we pick up the narrative. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Pause right there. Eve is being thrown into what we've been calling a Kairos moment. For those of you that are new, if this is your first time here, or you haven't heard the term before, I'll quickly explain. A Kairos moment is a moment, um, uh, it could be one of chaos, crisis, God intervening, but it's a moment in our lives that will change the trajectory of our course of life. When these Kairos moments hit, we go through this process where we start to question, who is God? What has he said? 
Who am I in light of God? What is God trying to communicate to me? And in the midst of this, how do I respond to this? So Eve is about to enter into one of these moments. She's entering into one of these moments. Now here's what you have to understand about this world that Eve lives in. It's awesome. It's good. She walks by an orange. It's the most magnificent orange she's ever had in her entire life. It could be no more juicy, no more orange. It is delicious. She passes a strawberry. She can pick a strawberry, eat it. It is fantastic, this orange. Completely amazing. She sees a lion. She doesn't have to be afraid of a lion. Lion's hanging out right over there. She might play with it, throw a stick. Lion grabs a stick, brings it back. Nothing to worry about. This world is good. There's no evil amongst themselves. There's no fear. I mean, shoot, they're walking around totally naked. Free. Good. Life is awesome. There's no shame. There's no guilt. There's none of those things. None of these things exist in this world. And the serpent throws a monkey wrench into the whole thing. Kairos moment. Eve, did God really say what I heard you guys talking about? Did he really say don't eat fruit from that tree? Is that really what he said? Well, yeah, that's what God said. God said don't eat it, don't even touch it. God never said don't touch it, but it's almost like you can see it going into exaggeration mode. Leave me alone. I don't want to talk about this. Can't touch it. If we do, we die. Come on. You're not going to die. I mean, let's get real here. Let's get real. You're not going to die. As a matter of fact, Eve, you're just woman. At this point, we don't know her name's Eve, but her name's Eve. Do you know that there's a better version of you out there? If you simply eat this fruit, we call you woman now. You will be known as woman 2.0. Your new operating system will be absolutely incredible. You will be just like God. Just like God. Just like God. God's faithfulness, God's believability is being put into question in this moment. Can I trust this being that I've been walking with for a while now? Can I trust what God has said? You can feel like after this is going on, the wheels in her head are just turning. Is God trying to hide something from us? Can, can God not handle the pressure of there being someone else just like him in this world, on this earth? Is God afraid of us and what we might become? Wow. I thought, I thought God like, wanted to partner with us in this life and in this world. God's withholding something from us. God isn't good. God isn't fair. God is not faithful. God is not believable. God is not believable. 
Verse 6. The woman was convinced. See, now she's convinced. Now she believes truly in something. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Eve goes through a Kairos moment, ignores the things that God has been communicating to her decides that she is to take matters into her own hands. She eats. Adam is right there with her. He doesn't man up. He doesn't step in. He's right there, and he allows this entire thing to unfold. Not only allows it to unfold, but takes of the fruit, eats of of it himself. And something new has now been introduced into this world. All of the good that they experienced together, all of that freedom that they experienced together is no longer existent. Adam and Eve have allowed sin along with all of its baggage to enter into our world. I mean, you imagine for a moment, what if Eve would have done something different? What if Eve would have chosen something different? No matter what, no matter what, this moment will define her life, would have changed her, cor- her course of life forever, one way or the other. She chose to disobey. She chose to say, you know what? God really isn't that faithful, and he really isn't that believable. So she eats, and then he eats. Sin comes crashing into this world. Now, here, here's what you have to understand. This is not like that movie, The Matrix. You guys ever seen the movie, The Matrix? One of my favorite movies of all time. One of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, What happens in this movie is the people that you see for like the first half of the movie, they're interacting with a computer program. They're really asleep. But this whole world that they've lived in, the jobs that they've lived, the relationships that they've been in, the parents that they've had, all this type of stuff, it's all been a computer program. It's all been fabricated. And the reality is like machines have taken over and the world's destroyed and they're like, so, you know, serving as like batteries for the machines in this quasi other world, the real world, right? It's not like this here where like Adam and Eve had this like tent where they couldn't see the chaos and destruction and, and like everything that was bad in their world. It wasn't like that. Adam and Eve immediately see, immediately see the consequences of their actions. And it was immediate. It didn't, wasn't like, oh, well, we ate this fruit and now like, time is going to elapse. Five years from now is when this thing is going to go bad. No, this thing goes bad immediately. And they see it immediately. That lion that they weren't afraid of, run, move quick. Climb up something. I don't, know if, I, I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe if you see a lion, I don't know if you should climb. I know with bears, you're not supposed to climb. I don't know if that's true with a lion. But run quickly, as fast as you can. Um, that orange that was so amazing, eat it when it's good because it's going to go bad. 
all of these things have now been introduced into their world. And their world is broken. So God comes. I'll paraphrase the rest of it. God comes and he intervenes. In the midst of their sin, in the midst of their disobedience, God chooses to engage Adam and Eve, which is totally perplexing because when people sin against us, when people do us harm, should I change microphones? Yeah. Okay. When, um, when people sin against us, we don't want to engage them, right? We, we want to write them off, move on, forget them for the rest of our lives, right? But that's not what God does. God engages them in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their obedience. It says that he, he, he comes into the garden, they hear him, they go, they hide. God calls out to them, where are you? God knows where they are. It's not for his benefit, it's the, for their benefit. But that's a totally different sermon, and I'm pretty sure you guys don't want me to start over with a new sermon at this moment in time. So I'll keep on going. He calls out to them. Adam comes, and he's like, well, you know, this is kind of what happened, and, you know, she, they're talking, and I ate, and, you know, what do you mean? And, you know, I'm naked now, so I'm like, what do you mean you're naked now? You've always been naked. Who told you? Well, you know, uh, she, she did it. It's her fault, right? You've been there. It's her fault. And he, God is like, what did you do? It's the serpent's fault. This little thing over here made me do it. Made me do it. God puts curses on each of them. Man, woman, serpent. He has to cast out the man and the woman because, as a side note, there is another tree in the garden. If you eat of its fruit, you become immortal. And God could not stand the man and woman being in this state that they're now in for the rest of their lives into eternity. So he casts them out of the garden to protect them. Now God is really believable, right? Before, ah, I like the fruit, I'll eat it. Now God becomes extremely believable. They've sinned. They've disobeyed God. They've gone against what God has desired. Adam and Eve's life completely changed course, totally off of what God intended for them. And yes, they eventually die a physical death, but what's bigger here is that they've died a spiritual death. That relationship that they had with God, that closeness that they had with God, that connection that deep, intimate connection that they had with God is now gone and broken. You can't be like that in that state of sin and be before God. Now, here's the thing. If God had decided to just say, you know what? Forget them. They disobeyed, which is what we would do. Forget them. I don't care. They didn't listen. They messed up. Boo-hoo on them, their problem. Let them figure this mess out for themselves. God would have been easily justified. We justify ourselves when we write people off. How much more so God, right? But that's not what God does. That's not what God does. Even in the midst of the relationship being broken, God continues to be faithful. 
God continues to be believable. Verse 14. This is the curse that he gave the serpent. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. God lets them in on what is going to be his greatest act of faithfulness to humanity. God lets the three of these a window. He gives them a glimpse of what will be God's greatest act of faithfulness towards humanity. He says that the woman's offspring will crush your head. You will strike his heel. You'll hurt him. You'll cause a little damage. But the reality is he will conquer you. Who is he talking about? Jesus. There you go. Church answer. Hey, that's, you can use it. Jesus. God sends Jesus as a man into this world to die on the cross for our sins. That's the striking of the heel. In, in, in that moment, Satan, the enemy, the devil, thinks, I've won. I've conquered God. I have finally figured out a way to dethrone God. What he didn't realize was that was just a striking of the bruise. And that three days later, when Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered sin, he conquered death. God was victorious over the brokenness that exists in our world. But it's not just that one act. See, as we engage the scriptures, we see that God has been faithful to humanity throughout all of time, showing us what he's like, coming after us, wanting to rescue us, picking up the broken pieces that humanity leaves behind, covering, protecting, providing. It was never God's intention for us to live independent lives of him. Never. God has always wanted full dependence from us to him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus was made sin. He became sin so that we might be right, made right with God. This is, this is our story. If we say we are followers of Jesus, this is key and central to what we believe. We really believe that this dude, like, died. And he was dead. And it was brutal, the death that he died. And three days later, he came back. So if you're, like, into zombie movies, like, this is your type of story, right? Except it wasn't, like, a zombie thing, all right? It wasn't, like, uh, all right? This is our story. There is a God that from the beginning of time has planned to come for our rescue. And the way that he went about it was being just like us, taking upon himself the sin and the punishment of that sin so that we would not have to. 
that he would bear it on the cross. Three days later, he would rise from the dead, conquering sin and death. This is who God is. God is a God of love. We talked about that in the first week. What is love? Love is patient. What is patience? Patience is having every right to be vengeful and, t- and have vengeance and take it, but deciding to withhold. God does this on our behalf. God loves us. God protects us. God made a way for us to be made right with God again. He did it. He is faithful. He is believable. And so again, I'll state it again. We will never believe God until we allow ourselves to discover that God is truly believable. How do we do that? How do we go about doing that? We have to read. It sounds really simple and kind of like, I don't know, simple, (laughs) simplistic. Read. Find out who God is. Don't just, you know, make it up in your own, I think God is this and that and the other thing. Read. What does the Bible say about who he is? Pray. Let him speak to you about who he is. Be in community. Be with other people that know what it's like to walk with Jesus. Ask them, is this right? Is this wrong? Am I right here? Am I off here? Step into these Kairos moments. Step into these Kairos moments. Interact with it. Allow God to lead you through it. Allow him to speak into those moments. We will never believe God until we allow ourselves to discover that he is believable. So the degree of our faithfulness is in direct correlation with our regard, our regard of God's faithfulness. So if we're riding this roller coaster of, of emotions, of faith, it's really because we don't believe in what God says about himself. That's really the issue. The issue is not faith. By the way, faith is not an action, okay? We hear that all the time, like, oh, faith is an action. Faith is not an action. You can't sit around and conjure up faith for yourself. Don't doubt, have faith. Okay, you're right. I'll have more faith now. Pour water into the bucket. Faith doesn't come up out of nowhere. Faith is a response. Faithfulness is a response. It's a response to God's believability and who God has stated that he is, who he is. A couple of questions to kind of leave us here with. If you think to yourself, oh, I don't think I struggle with faith. I think I'm good. I think I'm good. Do you struggle with being in control? Do you like to be in control? When things don't go your way, are you angry? Are you vengeful? Are you hating on somebody? 
Do you struggle with being in control? Do you fear others? Are you afraid? Are you afraid of what people think about you? Is this and whatever else you have, is it, is it because you're afraid of what other people think about you? Do you look elsewhere from God for satisfaction? Do you look elsewhere for satisfaction? Do other things make you happy? When we leave here, like, oh, thank God that's over. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. No, no. Do you feel you need to prove yourself to God or to anybody else? These are all indicators that our faith is off and that there is something that we do not believe about who God is. So if you're new here, if this whole Jesus thing is like totally, man, that's out there and left field for you, my encouragement to you would be to start to seek, start to ask questions about who God is. Read. Talk to people who may know a little bit more or just a little bit further along in this process than you are. Have conversations. If you've been walking for, with Jesus forever, and you, this is you right here, I encourage you to do the same thing. Foundationally, something is off about what you believe about God and who you believe God is. We will never believe in God unless we allow ourselves to discover that God is truly believable. Faithfulness deals with God's believability. And here's where I say that, like, you can't give yourself more faith. There's nothing that you and I can do to make God more believable. There's nothing that we can do to make God more believable. He is who he is. And either it's cool with you or it's not, but there's nothing that we can do to go about changing how believable God is. He's true to his core. He is true to who he is. He loves us. He loves us. And yet at the same time, he will not let us be as we are because of our sin. He desires to change us. He desires to transform us. He desires to make us new. To make us new. Let's pray together.